Kate. Hi Patrick. Welcome back. Um, Thank you, it's nice to be here. Uh, now the last time you were here we were talking about uh, Leotard and we had a sort of a discussion about Leotard, language, rhetoric and politics and uh, towards the end of that conversation we were starting to talk about Plato and education so I thought maybe we could uh, continue on with that discussion. Now I, um, you've had a look in your research about your kind of sort of steeped in ancient philosophy and uh, that sort of led you towards um, a discussion of this notion of uh, paideia. Now, paideia roughly in Greek means education, is that right? It does, yeah. Yeah, culture, education, I suppose, something like that. That's a broad range of range of meanings. Interestingly, it, uh, it, it, it shares its form with the Greek word for child as well. Okay, so as you see in like uh, paediatrician and uh, so on, what is the, um, is there a difference between how we understand the word uh, education and paideia? There is, I think. Uh, uh, and and there's there's obvious similarities. So the the word education is uh, derives from the Latin, uh, which means a sort of leading towards. Whereas the 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 word paideia, uh, through its association with childhood as well, has a has a much closer kinship, I think, with with play, with the idea of play. So and that 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 difference is. Uh, fairly central importance, I think, and maybe maybe that will come out a little bit in a in a in our discussion. Is it similar? Is the word paideia similar to how the sort of the German word Bildung, or are they different? Well, again, I, I mean, I think that that's a, that's a that's a an interesting and very difficult question. But yeah, you would think initially that there was a similarity between the German idea of Bildung. Uh, the so the idea of the of, of formation of the self, a formation of character, and the idea of uh, the Greek idea of paideia. But what's interesting about that is I think the the it's the influence of Plato that really establishes that connection, and it's sort of getting back behind Plato and and trying to recover or construct an idea of paideia that is somehow a little different to the notion of education or building that we still have that's 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 important for me having said that i'm not sure you know how far i'm competent or able to go in that direction at the moment so that's a so i suppose it's a matter that's on the horizon of my research really well let's talk about plato then i mean in some way the question of education is all over plato Yet it's probably not something that he's noted for. You know, Plato's noted for his metaphysics or his political philosophy. But uh, so I know I know you've been studying um, Werner Jaeger, sort of the uh, famous classicist, and he argues the thesis that to understand Plato, you need to understand uh, Paideia. Is that correct? Well, I suppose that's that's what I'm saying. Yes, that uh, I, I would absolutely ag- agree with that. That it's uh, an essential element of uh, Plato's philosophical work uh, concerned with education and that in in order to assess or to come to some sort of understanding of the nature of his philosophical achievement it is it is it is necessary to understand what Plato actually does to the concept of and or the idea of education as such so I suppose I mean in the first instance you you You'd have to say that it would be, it's impossible to, as soon as you read Plato, you're aware that his, 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 the dialogues are essentially polemical in intent. Polemical against the sophists? Against the sophists and against the poets, the rhetors, uh, uh, and in in that sense, they situate themselves against a, a, a horizon of culture and education that they are that they are contesting. So let's start with that then. Uh, what is uh, Plato's critique of sophistic education, or what does he see as the uh, 
limitations of the of the sophist approach to education. I mean, essentially, his as 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 I understand it, his criticism of or the limit his his this assessment of the limitations of sophistic education is that it's it's lacking in an orientation towards the truth. Uh, and in, in and in a certain sense, and he would make this claim, I suppose, about art more generally, poetic art more generally. He also sees it as corrupting in a certain in in a certain way. So a corruption of the soul, a corruption of character, if you like. So, in in a certain sense, I mean, it's the 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 sophists, the rhetors, arrivals for Plato. And they're rivals in terms of their claim upon human culture, human being, and the, the, the nature of the human being and the nature of even of a political society that would be, would, that would be founded upon that idea of, the, of what the human being is as well. So there's a, a vigorous contestation of that. Now, I think what he, what he actually tries to do, the dialogues are educative in intent. I mean, in that sense, they, they, they are, they're not written really as abstract philosophical treaties, but they're about converting the way in which people understand themselves and understand their relationship to each other and to the world as well. So if you like, I mean, a shorthand for that would be to say that they're political in intent. But in, in that sense, in order to realise that the kind of political society, it's necessary to educate the human being. And so that's what Plato's Plato's trying to do. So then, presumably, the distinction or the demarcation with the sophists in terms of how they approach education is in order to come up with a, a method of education which leads students uh, towards the good. Because I mean, if we think of the, you know, if you think of like the Republic, I mean, so much of the Republic, Plato spends time trying to come up with a program of education in the very, very broad sense. Uh, so the question is, I suppose, is 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 uh, how does how how does he how does he go about that, or what are what are the what are the things that we should be teaching the young in order that they can have a relationship uh, with the good in the republic, say at least. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the way I, I suppose the way in which I'd I'd try and th- think about it maybe it'd be helpful to say first of all that you know a sophistic and education the sophists didn't really educate uh not in the sense that we we might understand it so you know we would understand education not really simply as equipping somebody with certain skills but as a as a as you said as a formation of somebody's character as setting them in a certain relationship with with the world and with one another it's so that they behave in a certain way. Now that seems to be fairly. It's it's intrinsic to our idea of education, and again, that may be something that we want to talk about: the historic inflection of that idea of education as the formation of character. Uh, a little later in this in this conversation, but Plato Plato's really about that. The sophists aren't so much about that. They may be. It may be that they advertised. Uh, by virtue of their teaching the ability to equip somebody with a certain skill but that would be the utmost what they taught was or what they provided people with was the ability to prevail over an adversary in an argument and normally you have to remember in Athenian society that uh, it was extremely litigious so Athenian society most you know an integral uh, important aspect of Athenian society was the courts people were suing one another there were a lot of court cases being brought Peter Shange, so, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly yeah so they were I mean they were essentially barristers and they would they would they would often if they they would often write defense speeches for people so they wouldn't even necessarily teach them how to argue so they were being paid they were being paid, yeah. And again, obviously, the idea of a of a platonic educator is not somebody who does not get paid. So that's us out of business. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a, yeah, in a certain sense, it is us out of business. But one one already sees that 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 you know we still maintain that idea of uh, a certain you know what what would you say philanthropic 
idea of the educator. The educator isn't, it doesn't educate simply for commercial gain. So although we're in, in paid employment within our institutions, we don't benefit in the same way. It's not a, our pay is not commercial. You know, we don't, we don't, we, we don't get paid by the number of, yet by the number of students that we teach. Uh, so it's not performance related pay. Exactly. And we, you know, I suppose that we would, we would say that that threatens the disinterested nature of, of the role of a teacher if one were to receive that sort of payment for it, which is obviously a concern that one finds now that there is this sort of creeping, creeping commercialization of the university, university sector. Well, speaking about that, uh, I guess, uh, would it be fair to say then that Plato's weariness and I suppose it's more than weariness. It's 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 sort of quite visceral hatred actually of the sophists, is because what uh, they are doing is uh, in some way very very instrumental. Like they 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 teach different people in ancient Greece how to do different things. Now, on some level, you know that's a very everyday sense of uh, what a teacher is. Yeah. But like uh, I don't know, they might teach. Uh, uh, a student how to be a good speech maker in order to be a successful politician, for example. So is Plato's problem then that the skills that they are imparting, that is the sophists, are very, very narrow and uh, instrumental and uh, very, very specific. And Plato's looking for something more broader. Is that right? In a certain sense, yes, it is. That would be That would be one way of seeing the problem. But it's slightly compounded in my reading or understanding of Plato at least by the fact in the in the first instance that he does not really view sophistry as a as a skill so you know it's it, it may be instrumental but it's not instrumental in the sense that we would understand skills to be so he sees it as, as not even really having the sort of epistemic value of a of a techne or a skill okay by techne you mean skill so it's the ancient Greek for skill, right? Yeah, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay. on the other hand, you know, the the other reason I'm slightly hesitant about that is that that Plato himself offers in the Republic, for example, an extremely technicized idea of political culture itself. So, you, you know, well, so Plato, the Republic itself is a technocracy. It is a technocracy, yeah. Which is sort of ruled by specialists, ruled by experts. It's ruled by specialists. It's ruled by experts, but it's also it's it's technicized in the sense that it seems to it seems to import a technical framework onto the idea of politics itself, in, onto the idea of a political life. So, in a certain sense, you know, the one way of reading it. This isn't my reading. It's not original with me uh, of the of the Republic. Is to see it as trying to as a realization of a plan in order to achieve a a, a, a good life a harmonious society it's a blueprint and of a sort of a schematic of it is yeah. how you organize a society it is it, precisely that yeah how do you talk about education in the republic so because i understand what you're saying in in the republic there's lots of different things that plato says that people should be learning when they go to school they should be learning music. They should be learning gymnastics. Uh, they should be learning politics. Uh, they should be learning the liar. All of these different things. Well, that all seems to be very, very kind of sort of compartmentalized. Is because I, I would, if I understand Plato correctly, at least in terms of education, he's trying to get us to try and have all those things but all of those things are necessary but so where we need to transcend them at the same time and that i guess well i suppose that's your mathematics coming true then yeah i mean clear, clearly you're right there's you know the 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 republic offers a sort of as you said a blueprint for, for society and within that society plato has develops an educative program that contains all of those different different elements that you you just mentioned but Beyond that, as I mean, the way in which I, I see it is, you know, Plato's Plato's works are his his dialogues are exoteric rather than esoteric. So by esoteric, I mean a, a, a teaching that is aimed at a very select group of people. So secretive, effectively, yeah, uh, yeah. Cult- a close a clique, if you like. We might call it now a clique, or at least. Uh, a, a group of people who share the same 
basic presuppositions and thus are capable of being initiated into the higher elements of a philosophical doctrine. The written works, however, necessarily can be read by anybody. So they're, they're, they're open. And they have, in that sense, they have to have a broad educative program because any, anybody can pick up a book. Anybody can read a book. But Plato isn't just interested in that. Now, Plato, what, when I talked about the, the higher, more mysterious aspects of the Platonic doctrine, I mean, I'm alluding to sort of the Pythagorean basis of that, but I'm talking about his idea about the, the forms, as we now call them, the ideas. And in that sense, there's something that's non-intuitive about his teaching. You know, Plato says to essentially, or he has Socrates say to people, look, you know, these things that you see in front of you, this desk, the, the, this room, I mean, it's a very well-known philosophical point, all of these things that are given to you in their sensuous immediacy, well, actually, they're not real. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's real are these things that I call ideas. Now, ideas are, and this is perhaps the the... the the catch perhaps for the unwary in in reading Plato's works ideas are, are not things that happen in your head they are they have an an extra psychic reality, reality. Yeah. yeah and they are they they're intangible they're invisible they're intangible that they're, they're only apprehensible by the organ of the intellect the soul but Plato claims that these things really exist and they are they have more reality than the things that we find in front of them. Now you've got to say to yourself, you know, if anybody if anybody heard that doctrine who wasn't already initiated into the sort of Pythagorean mysteries, they would, you, you know, you'd go, well, you're fucking nuts. <laughs> <laughs> That's so understandable. To, understandable so response. Yeah. He, in in a certain respect, what he's got to do is persuade people. You know, it's it's about the the, the there may be uh, there may be. A, a, a truth, an abstract truth of the nature of the world, and, and that abstract truth may be that, you know, the, the, the real truth and origin of the world lies outside of the, the sensuous world itself, which is... It's not too uncontroversial, that, is it, when you think about it? <laughs> it's not too uncontroversial, though. Well, I mean, I suppose my point is that, you know, if you think of it as a type of knowledge or an episteme, as he would say himself, like, you know, that it's... You don't take your perception as truth. Yeah. You know, that's rather controversial. Like, I mean, even in a hardcore empiricist will say that, won't they? They will say, you know, you know, you look at the sort of atomic material structure of the universe, like it's, it's not how we experience it. I mean, maybe they would have a different uh, idea of what the origin of that truth is, but in an epistemological sense, it's, 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 it's coming from the same root. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I think you know. Again, if you if you think back to 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 the period in which Plato was was actually writing, you know, on the one hand, there is a, a pre philosophical background to to his ideas. So obviously, there's the there's the the activity of Socrates, who never wrote anything down, but who was Plato's teacher. And then there's the sort of Pythagorean schools. There's all the pre Socratic schools that we know about: the Atomists, the uh, the Milesian philosophers, P Parmenides, and Heraclitus and there's some sort of contestation but as I understand it I mean Pl Plato's intent is not really just epistemic or even theoretical in the sense that we speculative in the sense that it's addressed purely to you know a, a, a cognoscenti a philosophical audience Plato's intent in the in the Republic is to found a political community based on philosophy and that means a political community that finds its grounding and its orientation in relation to the idea of the true and that means that you have to orientate everybody or educate them. The idea of education for Plato in that sense is of an orientation of people. So you actually have to dispose them towards the truth. Now, that's very that's that, you know, that in a certain sense may be quite, quite a difficult undertaking insofar as he's claiming that the nature of the truth is resists in these very abstract entities. So he has to he has to in his dialogues educate people and that means in the sense that we might now think of education in the latinate sense of a drawing towards 
it is a it is a way of, of conducing if that's a word conducing people to towards something making people conducive towards yeah. the truth yeah. or justice yeah, yeah. Abs- absolutely i mean we still we still plato's hold on the idea of 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 education plato's framing of the idea and is is still still has a hold over us today i mean you know we do still think of education in that way that education isn't simply you know we don't we don't send children to school just to fill their heads up with facts uh we send them to school to dispose them towards knowledge and learning in a certain way and clearly nowadays you know we we play that inflection slightly differently for a number of different different reasons most most notably because you know nobody now is guaranteed a lifetime of employment so we have to sell the idea that you know what we're doing when we're equipping people with knowledge is teaching them to teach themselves teaching them to be self self learners teach a man to fish exactly yeah (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah i'm wondering then if sort of like as you agree with sort of the jaeger uh Werner jaeger if you think of something like you know the very very famous um story of the cave or play, the, the allegory of the cave in the republic hmm. so that's you know i mean you know that's something that's sort of got a huge hold in popular imagination it's a, a probably one of the most influential parts of the republic yeah, one of the things we don't hear about on it is how education figures in that. So I'm wondering, could you articulate how education is central to that story? Because I think it would be a very useful way to help sort of listeners understand what we're talking about. Yeah, I can, I can, I can try. Uh, the The allegory of the cave uh, is a, a very short section of the Republic, uh, and it's a, a tale told by Socrates to uh, one of his uh, followers or friends, Glaucon. Glaucon is, which means something like sharp-sighted, the term Glaucon. That's gla- what Glaucon means. Yeah, yeah clear-sighted, I think. Uh, Glaucon was actually one of Plato's Plato's brothers. So there are two, two of Plato's brothers in the dialogue, Adamantus and Glaucon. And that's the first word of the, uh, the Republic, isn't it? I went down to the Piraeus to meet Glaucon of Athens, something to that effect, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's with Glaucon. Isn't he? He's walking down with Socrates, walking down with, with, with Glaucon, and then he gets, it gets interrupted by a poly, one of Polymarchus's, a, a guy called Polymarchus's. <laughs> Sound like. <laughs> Badger, one of the guys. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, what Keith has alluded to here was Alan Badu's uh, very famous translation of uh, Plato's Republic into French, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's not that's, a fan, Keith. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's a, I think it's a very good it's a very good piece of work. But we maybe maybe as my chair was creaking at the same time, you can cut that little <laughs> okay yeah. little bit out. Yeah, so Glaucon, he's, he's, Socrates tells the allegory of the cave to Glaucon, and, uh, he says something like, you know, he invites Glaucon to imagine or picture a scenario where people are in an underground cave. And I think, I think he actually says, if I remember correctly, you know, this, you can picture education like this. So quite clearly, this is a story about education. And he pictures, says, picture, picture a group of people in an underground cave who are chained up and they stare at a wall in front of them. And on that wall are cast shadows that are, are thrown by objects that are uh, uh, placed in front of a fire that burns behind the prisoners. So the pris- all the prisoners see is what is in front of their face, faces, uh, and they are unaware of the cause, the, the true cause of those things that they see. One of the prisoners escapes. Now, the, the escape, the liberation of the prisoner from his chains is meant to be the, represent an idea of education. And what happens, and this represents a sort of the idea that I was saying of that Platonic philosophy, what Plato is trying to do is convert the way in which we we relate to one another and to the world. Education is actually pictured as the prisoner turning around. So it's actually a conversion of what he looks at. He looks at the world in a different way. This is what's called metanoia, the turning of the soul, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's an educational moment. That's an educational encounter. 
Yeah, and one would say that that's you know that again perhaps that's what we still still hold to still you know that and what I was alluding to when I said that the idea of education we we still think it's not just simply about filling people's heads up with facts with information, but it is actually a, a, an operation on their on their character or on the, or on their disposition. So it affects the way in which they relate to things. That's what makes education so difficult and demanding. So it's a transformation of the self is required in some level. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So Plato Plato has Socrates picture that that and the the movement then is of the 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 prisoner who's been liberated and turned around uh, ascends out of the cave and sees the the world outside of the cave itself and and is beholden upon the true nature of reality. And it's very easy then to convert that that picture or that allegory into uh, it, it, or extract its meaning from it by mapping it onto the Platonic teaching about ideas, the doctrine of ideas, as it's sometimes called. So the outside world is meant to represent the world of the forms, which are the true realities and they are illuminated by the sun, which is is the, represents the uh, the idea of the ideas, which is the idea of the good, which is pre- precisely the source of all our knowledge and understanding of the world itself. The prisoner then returns to the cave and tries to tries to communicate to his fellow prisoners what he's what he's seen, and they are hostile. And aggressive disbelieve him. That's an interesting moment. That I suppose uh, any teacher who listens to this will recognise that in some sense. That uh, you know, if you're a well-intentioned teacher, it can be quite dispiriting to uh, try and you know go. This is for your good. You know, this is a you need to learn this stuff because it's for your good. And you're like, nah, no, I'll just go. I don't know, I'll smoke fags and go play, play PlayStation or whatever we do these days. You know. Well, I think that the interesting thing about the 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 allegory of the cave in that respect is that, you know, it's it's sort of, as you said, it's it's perhaps one of the most famous pieces of philosophy that that's ever been written. Most people refer to it. It's it's much anthologized. Popular culture sees it as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so it's it's very pervasive, and yeah, I don't I don't think that Plato Plato wanted people to just accept it you know as i was trying to say the dialogues are actually directed towards an audience that goes beyond a closed clique of people who are already converted to a philosophical disposition even if they don't have a full philosophical knowledge that that's not who plato's really addressing plato's addressing the skeptics the cynics and he's those are the people he wants to educate so he wants to he wants to in enact a transformation of the self or at least set the conditions for that to be possible now i think when you know the, the, in, in a certain sense what plato's much more interested in is in in those people what he almost what he invites is skepticism so at one point glaucon actually says that this is a very strange picture that you're you're painting for us uh socrates and socrates says oh yeah but it's us this is who i'm talking about these people that I've just, these prisoners are us. Now, you know, in a certain sense, so when you, you know, you're talking about the, this dispiriting moment for a teacher, but actually it's the, probably the moment that you want. You want you want somebody to go, no, fuck off. That's not us. We are, you know, we're not these fucking prisoners. We're not that unenlightened. And it's, it's precise. And this is how clever a writer Plato is. It's often, you know... A, it can be overlooked at how skillful an artist Plato actually is, even though he makes war on the, on on the artists and the poets explicitly in the Republic, or has Socrates say, you know, they have no place in the Republic as it stands. Plato is is a very skillful writer, is a very skillful artist, precisely because you know, in a certain sense, he knows and and ex- utilizes the capacity of art to affect people and that means again to change their relationship to the world but in the in the allegory of the cave you know i think i don't think he wants people to immediately comply with the picture and say oh yes because you you're completely unmoved by it what he really wants and what you sometimes i want as a teacher is you know you're reliant on the people who just say yes are very passive 
They're like, you know, they're like conduits through which information, basically, you know, they take it in through the mouth and they shit it out through their asses without it really making any difference to them whatsoever. You want the person who says, no, fuck off. You know, this isn't, this isn't like this at all, you know. So that, that moment of disquiet is an opportunity yeah, for yeah. pedagogy. Uh, precisely and what happens in the allegory of the cave is through that moment of disquiet you know the 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 person who says no you know this isn't this isn't a picture of us this is not what i'm like they some of them will realize that that's exactly what the prisoner would say right right yeah yeah and as soon as they've done that they realize in realizing that they are their reaction would be the same as the prisoner they become different from the prisoner but they've also been conducted onto a philosophical scene because through that moment they recognise that there's a discrepancy between what appears to be the case and what really is the case, which is what Plato is actually talking which is about. What the uh, the whole book is about, yeah. Which is what the the other story of the divided line is about: the difference between uh, opinion, perception, belief, and knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's about coming to recognise that. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things about the Republic as, an, as, a, you know, as a piece of education, and this is why I think Jaeger's absolutely right, you don't really understand Plato unless you understand him in relation to the Greek idea of paideia. And that means not just seeing it as, you know, as, as a, an inert historical background that somehow gives us a bit more information. But you see what Plato's responding to, what he's trying to do, what he's, how, he, how, how and why Plato is able to shape our culture in the way that he does against, against those historical antagonists that he's, that as it were, he's doing philosophical battle with. But, you know, you read, you read the Republic. And again, it's not really about, you know, it's not simply a vehicle for a set of abstract speculative theories about the nature of truth, or even just simply a blueprint for society. But each of the, each of the characters, the individual characters that, that crop up, uh, and I owe this to Alan Bloom, who's 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 actually absolutely brilliant on this sort of point. There, it's it, it's it's their characters that are important, and they argue from a certain position, you know, given their commitments, given their professions, and they they you know they they actually represent something. So you can think about the dialogue opens with a discourse with Cephalus an old man whose house Plato, uh, Socrates has got, been invited back to and he starts off in a relatively polite conversation with Cephalus that pretty much runs out of Cephalus's control after after a few pleasantries. So, you know, they exchange pleasantries. I think Socrates asks him how he is and Cephalus says, yeah, you know, I'm great because I'm, I'm relatively wealthy. You know, I, I can still conduct all my religious observances. And then Socrates just goes, oh, so that's what you mean by justice, is it? <laughs> being able to conduct your but, you can see why they executed him yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but i suppose the thing there about about you know that that exchange is in one sense it's it's not a particularly interesting exchange you may you know you can read it and think oh well you know it plato set this up in a certain way to elicit a certain response so that it can become a vehicle for socrates to open up a question about the nature of justice which is which is undoubtedly the case but in you know in a certain respect a lot of what what Kefalus says is unobjectionable until you realize his position and you trace that back to his his former profession as well and then you can do the same with Polymarchus's son who I think is not just necessarily a merchant like Kefalus so what Kefalus is doing is giving a merchant's view of justice justice is something that can be traded bought and sold a Kef, uh, Polymarchus, his son, and again, you know, it comes from the uh, polemos means to struggle or fight. Polymarchus has a much more uh, military, he's a, you know, he's a soldier and he gives a, a much more military version of the idea of justice. And you can trace these out and you can see, you know, these are, com- these are various professions within Greek societies and various notions, notions of justice that would be associated with them. And what Socrates is doing, again, is, is trying to, trying to, Plato tries to articulate those views and then Socrates tries to move them. So it's all about... It's ad hominem. It's an attack on the person, yeah. yeah. So one, the one thing we tell our students not to do, uh, play the ball, not the man and all that. But the thing for Plato is then, is he's, he's got all these different perspectives, which are all in a way different techniques. So you've got the, the military man, 
you got the uh, sorry what was the other one you got the, uh, the merchant the merchant um, then you have Thrasymachus who's the sophist and you got uh, Calicles in the other dialogues who's sort of kind of just also a rhetorician yeah, yeah. Um, and they're all very very specific right uh, and is it the case that what's Sort of ties all these things together is that Plato is saying is that that your your expertise, your background, your work, your profession, your craft will only get you so far in terms of understanding what is justice, what is politics, what is truth, and what Plato rather is doing is he's he's he's, uh, he's doing a synopsis, if you will, like he's bringing all of these different truths and all of these per- perspectives being overcome. So ultimately, that's the reason why sort of liberals hate Plato. It's kind of an illiberal view that sort of, you know, one's own profession, one's own background is not the foundation of morality or justice or uh, the good. Mm. Yeah, clearly. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, that's, I suppose what, the, the again, the platonic insight is, in that is that you know society isn't just an 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 amalgam of all these different professions but there needs to be something underlying it that unifies it and again you know if you want to put that metaphysically you would say the one thing that ties everything together is truth yeah so it's not like yeah so he's not yeah that's a good distinction that actually that helps what i said there or it adds to it because it's no, he's not a pluralist, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? Absolutely, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like John Dewey says, you know, <laughs> the more different types of crafts, uh, the more diversity we have, and that therefore is a good and fulfilling and, 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 and rich and so on. But he's saying we have to find out what's behind everything. What's what are the unifiers? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There has to be some grounding grounding activity that that establishes the 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 coherence or the unity of all different human techniques, skills, activities, so on and so forth. Otherwise, community is not possible. I mean, that's what the word says, isn't it? It's a common unity, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To play fast and loose with etymology, but yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's Latin, is it? Or probably comes from uh, probably comes from the Greek originally. I'm, I'm not sorry, I'm not, not clever enough to <laughs> to know that one. <laughs> it's communio. It's a military term, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think so. yes, it is. To have fortification. Latin, yeah. yeah. Um, I suppose. The question then that strikes me as interesting, at least, is that it's very much in the cave. It's about character. It's uh, the people Socrates interrogates. It's about their character. It's about the type of person they are. So, what is sort of Plato's alternative? And what type of what type of person is 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 a good person? What type of person is a good political person? What type of good person uh, knows the truth? Uh, what does the transformation? get us to or is, is is if that's the right way of formulating the question i that's a that's a really interesting question and i think you know i, I might i might duck out on a full response to that i mean if you wanted to you know what's what's a good person a good person is socrates <laughs> that's the right <laughs> someone who dies yeah yeah someone who's who holds truth of the highest value uh, and who is who is it devotes their life and is willing to sacrifice their life to that end. So but again, sacrifice is an important part of being a good person. Then, for abs- example, yeah, absolutely, sacrifice is is uh, an incredibly important part of of being a good being a good person. And really, you, you know, the guardians of the city, uh, the republic, the ideal city, are required to make all sorts of sacrifice. So, you know, they live communally, they live very austere, Spartan existences. And yeah, it's a, it's a dedicate, it's a, it's a life dedicated to the service of the community. It's an entirely disinterested pursuit of the common good. Uh, and that's, that's, that's required. And, and in a certain sense, that's what one finds in Socrates, the person who devoted himself to the, to the good of the Athenian his Athenian citizens, fellow Athenian citizens, who lived a life of poverty, really, relative poverty, had no p- pursuit of material gain, was immune to the charms of young men, uh, and also immune to the effects of alcohol, uh, and uh, courageous in the extreme. So that's, you know, that would be the, the, the archetypal 
good citizen, somebody who knows their place and who accepts their place. So again, you know, for, for Plato, there's never really a case of self-advancement in the sense that we might now think of education as being the means towards uh, the attainment of, of self-advancement. You know, it's for, for Plato, it's completely a subordination to the to the idea of the common common good. It's an interesting question, though. I mean, there's a lot to, that can be said about, you know, the, the 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 character virtue that distinguishes the the guardian class as a whole is spiritedness. And there's a, so this is uh, what's the Greek word for this? It escapes me. It's tumas. Is it's it? tumas? Yes. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, it's. It, I mean, it's very. It's difficult. It's difficult to characterize what what Plato's really getting at. But spiritedness is sort of, you know, it's somebody who's spirited is somebody who will stand up for themselves. Who maybe 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 quite confrontational, could be quite aggressive, uh, in a certain respect, but also very very courageous and and you know clear sighted in in the service of certain ends. There's a there's a really interesting parallel that runs throughout the Republic between. Uh, so I think at one point Socrates says, well, you know, we, we need our guardians, the people who are devoted to the care of the city. So not the ordinary artisans, you know, and artisans have, have certain skills. That's what, that's what characterizes an artisan. So some people may be good at, at carpentry. Uh, and they they would become house builders, for example. Other people may be good at, 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 at agriculture, at farming, and they become farmers. So cultivating one's natural dispositions yeah, is good absolutely. for you. Natural but, talents, yeah, in the modern but, sense. But spiritedness is not is not a a skill or a you know a techne. It's not it's not an attribute in the same way that skills are. Of it's it differentiates a person. You might say differentiates a person ontologically, in a certain way. So we then have a different class of citizens who have this have this character virtue of spiritedness, and they are they're devoted to to the welfare of the city. Or they have the capacity, at least, to care for the welfare of their fellow citizens and look after the city. They have to be able to fight, but they also, the, you know, the, the, those that also possess the virtue of, of intellect or nous will become the philosopher rulers who will make executive decisions about about the the actions and behavior of the city itself so they become the political leaders but what there's a parallel drawn so socrates says you know how can we have a class of people who will be courageous stand up for themselves spirited spunky i suppose we might actually say uh you know and and but that will look after their their citizens those sorts of those sorts of attributes don't really go together you know on the one hand you want somebody who's who's aggressive and the other caring where where would we find that and then he says oh well actually nature does provide us with a parallel that's a dog you know so dogs (laughs) (laughs) dogs are like that on the other hand you have the sophist so thrasymachus when thrasymachus is introduced he is he's he's socrates says something like you know when when he was he was wild and uh you know he leapt in and it's a good job i saw him first because if he'd seen me if he'd looked at me before i looked at him he would have paralyzed me now that was a a power that was attributed to a wolf in greek culture so the sophist is likened to a wolf now obviously the wolf and the dog the dog is a domesticated version of the wolf so again that shows you something the sophist is spirited there's no doubt about that uh but it, it, again, you know, so I suppose what I'm saying is that that's it's as, as much in, in human nature. Human nature is inherently ambiguous and spiritedness as a facet of human nature is itself intrinsically ambiguous, but it does need to be trained. So, right. So that's where teaching comes in then. So uh, Tumas or spiritedness is something that's inescapable. It's uh, all humans have it, yet it's something, well, some humans have it more than others, I guess. But yeah. uh, it's something that needs to be moderated or tempered in some way. Yeah, absolutely. It needs to be trained. Right, and that's what the yeah. that's what the, the what the republic has tried to figure out is how to. Yeah, you might you might say you know in as much as we again we downplay this I think sometimes when we talk about the republic we don't really talk about it as and and this would come back to a question I suppose of paideia of, of paideia as play and not just education you know we we tend to read the republic all Plato's works as philosophers at least and extract the philosophical ideas the arguments and and we see the the training that's involved in that as a training in in again in this fairly abstract logical skills of argumentation. 
but really there's you know there's much more that's going on in it 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 is about 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 the you know the idea of spiritedness is right at the heart of the republic it's everything you know what is this what is this character trait what does it mean and how can we dispose those who have it in a certain way such that they will not seek their own self-advancement but will seek the or subordinate themselves to the achievement of the the good of the community as such and as a whole and if you look at glaucon and adamantus both of those both of those characters plato's plato's brothers uh embody the spirit of embody spiritedness so glaucon glaucon complains i think when socrates sets out his first version of the origin of the of communal life of the city uh which he he describes as a sort of you know uh uh a a, a a communal existence in which there is a distribution of labor amongst people but but it's a sort of it's a rudimentary form of existence where people people produce only those things that are sufficient for their needs and exchange them one with the other so the far you know one person will do farming one person will be a builder and there's a fair exchange and they only they only they only produce what they need in order to continue to survive. Glaucon, who's very spirited, says, "Well, that you know that's fucking shit. <laughs> who wants to?" He actually says, "It's a city for pigs." You know, who would want to live like that? But again, he says it because he's spirited. You know, and 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 you know, again, you could see the labor of the Republic as as a transformation of Glaucon's character. You know, what what we want to end up with is something that disposes leaves Glaucon in a position at least to become a potential political leader right and, and we follow that you know again that's meant to be that you know we follow that not in a not in a disinterested way but you know we are affected by his what we would now call his education but before Plato, and this is the point I was trying to make at the beginning when we were talking about, you asked me about the idea of Paideia. You know, before Plato, I don't know, really. I mean, this would be, this is my working hypothesis. I don't know that we had that idea of education. Plato originates that, really. That idea of education as a fundamental transformation of character. Now, we just, we sort of accept it. As a, as a given i mean we might have moved in some respects you know again where we stand now in in relation to education at least in this country is ambiguous around that question you know so on the one hand it clearly the aim of education is to e- equip people with the skills uh, that they need to do their job but the skills for life which again comes down to a matter for character it's almost as if you know education now is about the is it's meant to be for the good of the individual we used to see education at the time when i was educated probably when you were educated it was a you know it was a, it, it was a social good so i didn't pay for my my university education because the the enlightened government at the time saw it as contributing to the general good of the country you know so it wouldn't be something now we're told that it's an it's an individual good and we see education as a means for individual gain and then that's what we do as educators is and presumably this you know is part of the ideological uh opposition to the humanities we equip people with certain skills so obviously what we do in the humanities have to tell you know, people that what we're equipping them with is uh, transferable skills. Transferable skills, yes, soft skills, but the skills that may be soft but most valued by employers, nonetheless, probably all true. But you know, that's in a certain sense how we market that. So on the one hand, we do that, but what what we're beginning to realise is obviously there is less and less scope for simply making you know the the possession of skills, whatever they might be, uh, a sufficient end for people to be able to market themselves. So now what we what we actually market are character virtues. You know, we will equip our students with resilience. You know, right. again, so we've sort of come full circle, but that now is the last commodification of the human spirit, as far <laughs> as I can see. You, you take so we're this. taking the two most out of education. <laughs> yeah, basically, you? yeah. Yeah. Uh, one question I wanted to ask you about all of that then, um, I mean, sort of going back to Plato, but that does does make me think about the sort of the question of access to education right and so in plato's republic i mean plato's very very famously you know uh, sees lots of different people as having the capacity to have uh, access to education uh, so women uh, slaves famously in the main offer is a different dialogue you know 
is is I suppose my question is: Is there anyone who he thinks uh, cannot be uh, educated, or does not have access to uh, education? As, uh, I I'm not sure that I know the answer to that question. I mean, I you, you know, there certainly would be there would be a sense in which you would say, well, yeah, you know, Plato would would see that there is uh, a, 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 a potential capacity in each individual to be educated and. You know, certainly for Plato, all all human beings entertain a certain relation to the truth. Now, so it's that, like it's not ethnic. It, it's not. It's not ethnic. Although it's that's you know, I'm I'm hesitant about that. I can hear hear myself hesitating when I'm answering you because again, I don't think that the Platonic dialogues are, are all of a piece. And so you may find him saying one thing at one time, or you know, at, at least develop. You could it's possible to develop the implications of what he says in a certain direction, and other times there may be, maybe a, a a different sense of that as well. But yeah, you know, to a certain extent, at least you know, theoretically, in terms of what one finds in the Republic, he's reasonably egalitarian in intent. So you know he recognizes he says we we can classify uh, individuals into three different groups and he actually calls the you know identifies them with a certain metal bronze being the lowest they'll be the artisan workers silver being the middle and the gold being the highest they'll be the philosopher ruler kings you know and they these are the the value of these metals is supposed to reflect the value of these people's souls but Clearly, that's not, you know, for Plato, it is possible. He recognises that there's a certain sort of genetic inheritance that is likely to occur. So he says, you know, the, the different classes of people shouldn't interbreed. So there's this sort of eugenic programme underpinning. Right, I mean, that's what I was getting to, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, he does say, well, you know, sometimes, you know, a, a bronze couple may have a golden child. That's just the way it is. And that if that child were the job, if you like, of the educators is to recognize that child and their potential and draw them out and, so and ensure the, that the, they. There is some scope for social mobility. <laughs> then. There is some. Yeah. I mean, Dewey famously, famously criticizes Plato for his lack of social mobility. Um, Dewey was a Democrat. Dewey was an avowed Democrat. Yeah. Yeah, Plato, uh, Plato less so. Less so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was rubbish, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> so, so you you don't think? Although post Brexit, one might think he had a point. <laughs> <laughs> you, so you do, you don't think uh, Plato is uh, valuable for a, dem- a democracy then? I I I I don't no I don't buy that at all I don't yeah I do think I do think Plato is valuable for a democracy you know and the one I suppose the one thing that strikes me there's a lot about Dewey's work that that I really admire and like I think Dewey is perhaps the most important uh, 20th century philosopher of education and it's difficult to imagine the contemporary education and theories about education without Dewey's influence but you know I'm. <laughs> I think there are philosophical questions that can be asked about Dewey's work and you know I think even though his criticism of Plato is quite is 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 quite sharp precisely around the non-democratic nature of the political program political educational program that that Plato is is setting out in the republic Dewey's work's not possible. That's the point. It's not possible without Plato. Dewey still holds to this idea of a transformation of the individual character. That's yeah, what education is about. It's growth for Dewey. Yeah, yeah. Transform- uh, continual growth. It is. is growth, yeah. And, you know, without without Plato, that's not possible. So in a certain sense, you know, Plato is the prior condition for the possibility of Dewey's philosophy. And yeah, Dewey may inflect that in a different way, but clearly all he's doing is realizing a potential that's inherent within Plato. So, you know, Plato is, I think Plato is absolutely useful for democracy and thinking about de- democratic education. You mentioned there the um, the concept of play. You said that was uh, something that's important in the Republic. Or, I mean, I think what you were saying was that it was, uh, there's a lot more to, you know, the Republic and it's sort of pedagogical argument than just it's it's all about sort of technocracy yeah you know it's not it's, it's uh, i mean it's it's more than just you know a dry arid over solemn uh account of who you are and where you should be and know your place and all of that so in some sense there's a lot more vitality to it i think i think that's what you're getting at at least yeah. uh, and that's what you're saying that uh 
one of the dimensions of uh, Plato's Republic on education is that he he has this concept of of, of uh, play. Yeah, I think. I mean, I suppose to talk about this in in you know we we perhaps begin with some simplifications, but I think. Y- you put your finger on it when you said, you know, it's much more than that dry, arid, technocratic uh, mode of thinking. That, that's that's a, a common reading of Plato's yeah. that. I mean, it's, it's yeah. kind of cop, pop, sorry, <laughs> copper, popper's critique of uh, sort of uh, Plato as well. Like, yeah. you know. Well, you know, and we, what we do is suppose, and this was the simplification, is we often we often counterpose the idea of play as a spontaneous, vivacious, trivial, acti- act, trivial activity to to a sort of technocratic, profound, sim- serious, serious adult. Yeah. yeah, but Plato, you know, well, perhaps the simplest way of talking about that is, you know, despite the seriousness of Plato's works, and they undoubtedly are very serious, in their intent. Plato Plato writes quasi plays. You know that's what they are. They they're almost they're, they're yeah. in the tr- they're in the, tra- the tradition of the Greek tragedy. Um. Yeah, absolutely. They well, they certainly make they they make play with the conventions of tragedy and comedy. You know, again, Bloom is very good in his commentary on Plato's Republic on drawing out that aspect. Yeah, he is very good because he's he's talking about how it's one of the things Bloom does well. I think is he draws attention to sort of the staging of it. Of the of the republic, yeah, absolutely, and I think you know, for me, that was a revelation. I think one has to. I, I was always open to 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 that idea of reading Plato's works in that way. Lyotard, who had you know began this conversation by by uh, recollecting or the the previous conversation we had, Lyotard is also very alive to those performative aspects, if you like, of dimensions of Plato's Plato's work. So I was very receptive to that. But, you know, Bloom, Bloom, I I found Bloom's reading d- deeply insightful of the, the Republic, really, in many ways. It's not necessarily one that, that many classicists would, would adhere to. But I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's insightful precisely in that respect. And that's an important, you know that's an important aspect of Plato's works that picking up that they are written in a dramatic mode, so they are sort of quasi plays. But but Plato plays; he plays with his audience. That's what I was trying to say, I suppose, about about the allegory of the cave. And it doesn't really work philosophically unless you see how he is playing. Similarly, in the in the uh, you know some of the early dialogues, I think they're written off as minor pieces of work. But again, you know what Plato seems to be doing there is playing with different ideas of character, of dialogue, of linguistic form. Uh, you know, Plato often has Socrates playing a different character in the dialogues themselves. So they're full of play. They're absolutely full full of play. And again, I don't see how you can differentiate that from their their educative what we idea so what does how, how do you think then about what are the consequences of that for for teaching or uh, education i mean is i mean is it in the sort of the, the very sort of banal sense that like teachers should have an incorporate an element of play into their you know into their classrooms rather than having a sort of a very regimented uh, uh, organization of the school or is it is it something uh, more sort of fundamental you know you know that play actually is sort of you know primordial and metaphysical rather than you know Ah, yeah, I think it's, I think it is actually much more, more fundamental than that. You know, so yeah, you're quite right. It's, it's trying to rehabilitate or, or rediscover, maybe not even that, you, you know, it may, maybe the, the, you know, it's already out there and common, common practice in a certain way, but, you know, a, a, a driving the idea of play throughout education is, is important i think for me so you know it's it's a it's not merely diversion or recreation it's not something that one does you know in between in between the hours of one o'clock and two o'clock or 12 and one at schools so that the ch- children would just burn off some energy so they can return <laughs> so the teachers yeah. can control them a bit yeah, more so you know, disciplinary effect, once yeah. again they're tractable really so yeah the, beyond the disciplinary aspects of play in a certain Foucauldian sense i suppose and and trying to trying to understand that i mean it's in it's a really interesting question i it's it's i mean it, it only occurred to me quite recently that it would be something that's that's really worth sort of it's not something i know about i was trying to work out you know at what at, at, at what period at what point 
schools actually had playgrounds that you know it became an essential element of the school to have a playground in it so i was thinking about robert owen and you know clearly robert owen so robert owen is the founder of the cooperative movement and sort of cooperative pedagogy yeah so he was he he established uh the, the you know the the sort of utopian communities uh in the 18 late 1800s mid to late 1800s i write yeah 1818 18, was it 18 must have been a bit earlier than that 1840 something like that uh where he set up uh, um, the, the name of the mill town escapes me now in scotland uh I should know this very well. New Lanarkshire or something like that, was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, New Lanark, yeah. yeah. So when he set it set up there and he developed a, a school for the for the children of the of, of the factory workers. And you know, in, in a certain sense, those sort of dance, music, uh, were part of the activities, the part of the curriculum that was followed there. So, you know, you could you could date it around then, I suppose, that people began to, I, I, you know, I suppose schooling developed around then, the idea of, you know, popular schooling, as we might understand it now, uh, uh, began to develop around that, that sort of period. And, and there would have been a recognized, uh, recognition of the part that those activities would play in the curriculum again in terms of developing well what we might now call well-rounded upstanding characters or citizens so you know owen was concerned about the corrupting influence of the immiseration of the work that the working classes had upon people on their characters and he sought to to remedy that through in part through improving the the conditions of the workers but in in part through schooling as well but again you know on that but i'm not sure when when playgrounds began to develop but playgrounds more generally outside of schools really you know were only only developed in i think the first the first public playground was developed in manchester in 1850 1859 something like that mid-19th century so you, again, that, that that idea of incorporating play into the social fabric is it takes on a certain importance and a recognition in terms of town planning, if you like, as well. So it's it's not just in terms of if the aim of education is to educate people to be to be good citizens, we all grown up and very serious and get mortgages yeah. and the like. Yeah, but, but you know, there's still a recognition of the part that play plays in that. Now you know that that is a subordination of the 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 playful impulse to uh, to you know to a certain what we might call a serious end if you like, but it's clearly it's directed in a certain way. Whereas you know I'm I suppose I'm interested, and this would be the the question where I suppose where we began around the difference between education and paideia. of 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 an idea of playfulness that doesn't serve a particular instrumental function or doesn't serve a particular social purpose isn't the setting up of playgrounds then and even sort of the periodization of sorry the periodization of of the time of play you yeah. know that's a kind of a curtailing of play within education it's like you know yeah i know this is your this is your uh this is your gym period or whatever and this is your uh this is your your lunch break you know and then this is your uh i don't know whatever uh this is a period of your art class or whatever you know so it's not i suppose what i'm saying is that sort of there's a sort of very much a sort of a, a specialization or a di- sort of a a disciplinary a disciplining of play it's sort of it's limiting it is keeping it in in one place rather than seeing it as uh yeah absolutely i mean play you know play play in all its various forms serves serves a multitude of different functions and clearly it can be subordinated to particular uh political framework so that you know it can be it can serve it can be it can be framed by the disciplinary project as Foucault might 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 put it and clearly that is the case that, that what happens i mean there's a very you know there's a, i think there's a really interesting it's probably been done actually but a social history of playgrounds it could be it would be interesting and philosophically interesting i think as well to see you know how playgrounds the idea of the purpose of a playground the way in which it's designed the uh you know the, the types of equipment that's, that are put in playgrounds for children to play upon how those change but clearly that's a you know that's again a compen- compartmentalization of the play play impulse uh 
you know, in a certain a certain respect, we we may have a, a very, you know, again, I, I I suppose maybe it comes from Dickens, but a historically informed idea of schooling in a certain period, you know, within British British culture at least, which is you know very very severe very very grey you know utilitarian ideas Did you see Ireland <laughs> <laughs> yeah and certainly under 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 the dominance of religion as well you know schooling serves a particular function and a disciplinary function one would say as well but very solemn yeah exactly solemn serious uh but children play i mean just children you know that's what they do children play and you you're not never going to get rid of completely completely eradicate that impulse of play now i'm not saying that one one should again accommodate play in terms of the you know because that's what children do within education so one has to make one's peace with it or you know one fights a losing battle nor am i completely you know of the insane idea that education could be completely utopian and not serve any social function whatsoever i mean clearly you know if if we're going to have citizens that can actually public schools i don't know yeah <laughs> but you know you've got to you've got to equip people with skills even if those skills that you you don't want them to be completely conformist they've got to have the skills that they need to operate things to transform society in and, the first place and but, that's what plato was doing in the sort of the republic of you, you go to school or you go to the republic and you you get trained in all of these different uh, all of these different things such as music and uh, the gym yeah, and yeah. Uh, mathematics and yeah, uh, yeah. all the rest of it yeah yeah and uh, i mean does he does he speak explicitly about it in the republic play that i don't know that i'd have to go back and have yeah, a look i can't at recall it. i can't recall yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he does talk about play. He talks about play in the laws. So there, he talks about the idea that you know that we are that, uh, and this is a fairly common trope, I think, in Plato that we are the gods' playthings. But he also talks about the idea of human play in the laws. I'm not so sure about the Republic. I'd need to go back and and look at that again, and you know, see where where if at all it does come up. Shall we stop there? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah, let's stop. Yeah, let's stop. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you, Keith. <laughs>